Patrick and I are from completely different backgrounds and see the world through very dissimilar lenses. Patrick comes from a political family in the US. He worked in finance, served in the military, and is an investor and a risk analysis strategist. I grew up in a commune in Germany and studied literature. I'm a writer and a professor of cultural history in the UK. I am also a coach and I have published some books on the art of self-improvement. In other words, Patrick likes dogs, data, guns, and free markets. I like cats, trees, and yards. Patrick's core interest is systems. Mine is psyches. Patrick says tomato, and I say tomato. But what Patrick and I share is a deep curiosity about other people's perspectives and ways of thinking. We both appreciate nuance and complexity and share a sense of being politically homeless. We also share an interest in looking more deeply at current trends and dogmas and a love of Stoic thought. Both of us have a desire for conversations that are not about point scoring, poking holes into other people's arguments, or converting them to our ways of thinking, but that are based on respect and a genuine wish to learn. So I hope you enjoy our podcast. Good morning, Anna. Hi, good afternoon, Patrick. How are you? Doing well yourself? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. So we're going to talk about purpose today. And I'm really curious about... um. Yeah, your, your take on purpose, because purpose is something that a lot of people talk about. You know, it's a very trending term. Everyone talks about, you know, we have to define our purpose, be clear about our purpose, live purposeful lives, find purpose in our work and so on. Um, what's what's your take on purpose? Well, I think it's a very um, expansive topic, right? So there's, like you said, there's probably multiple um, ways you could look at purpose. And I think it's difficult because it seems similar to what we talked about in, in values or other things. It's difficult for people to define. They sort of know when they have a clear one, they may not know what it's like to not have one. Right. Or they may think that, um, every part of their life has to have a similar purpose. Right. And I think that's probably one of the, um, causes of all the existential angst is all of this push onto people that every your your career has to have a purpose your fa your family life has to have a purpose your hobbies have to have a purpose right when in fact maybe they just have to have enjoyment like you know i talked about there doesn't have to be um a purpose for every one of your activities but maybe what people are meaning is an overall arc of a story to your life right and that's more what people are looking for. And maybe if we told people more, it's a story or a narrative rather than this harder word of purpose, right? And I and I'm I'm not sure where it came from because I'm I can guarantee you a hundred years ago, people weren't as concerned with it, right? It's sort of a, a modern ailment, and it's more of a first world ailment than it is in other places because <clears throat> they're looking more at survival or resource out, you know, sort of gathering resources to protect themselves than they are about purpose. Um, yeah. That's my my quick take. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think I like this idea of purpose pressure, right? We have to have a sense that everything we do serves a purpose. And that that I think that can that can actually um move into instrumentalizing 
all sorts of activities and even making sure that our hobbies and our leisure and any activity at all that we commit has to serve a purpose. I think that's very dangerous if we go down that route because then everything has to have a function and contribute to an aim. And as you say, that takes the joy, the fun, you know, the aimless plaisir out of activities. And that, that can be very dangerous as well. And I do think that, you know, this um, turn towards personal purpose is, is quite recent, as you said. I mean, people have always thought about our purpose as a species or our existential purpose, you know, the purpose of life of existence you know philosophers have reflected on those mm -hmm. questions for millennia but this idea that our that we have to design our own purpose you know that because obviously we're living in the age of individualism um where where we design everything and, and we have to design our own meaning our own purpose and that's a, a task that isn't easy right it's, it's something that is expected of us nowadays and a purposeless, aimless, meaningless life is obviously not something anybody wants. But I guess in the past, people accepted a kind of general narrative of purpose, right? There was a communal and um, sort of broadly accepted story about purpose. And now we each have to define our own purpose. Now we have to um, do that existential work ourselves. And as you say, that can can actually feel like freedom or or like pressure you know and it's probably a little bit of both and what do you think yeah it's a it's definitely a little bit of both and it's a privilege we get to be able to choose those in a way but for a lot of people it's probably seems undoable and it's you know i think in the there was sort of that joseph you know campbell idea of following your bliss yes. that came about in the early 80s and it's a great notion, except it's not a very useful, you know, heuristic for a career or for education, right? Because a lot of people feel like, well, I like the bliss. I like to um, do XXX activity. That doesn't necessarily mean that you need to make that your career. It just may, it means more maybe you can make it part of your life, right? And so if you're someone who likes to teach or coach, there's a million things you can do. You can do more business coaching. You can do sports coaching. You can teach and all. So there's a way you can be just a manager at a company who coaches their employees well. So it's like that that story that if you're if that's your bliss, it doesn't mean you have to be a high school gymnastics coach, right? It can mean you can sort of do across things and at any point in your life. So I think when people say that to young people or follow your passion, that's probably not very good life advice. Because a lot of young people are, well, I have multiple passions or my passion is I like to party and hang out with my friends. That's not, that's a leisure passion, right? And I think it's difficult because people say these platitudes and then they don't give actual concrete guidance. Mm -hmm. So then people follow, and then, you know, I, I have a lot of friends and you have young friends and they say, well, I don't have the specific word passion. What do I do? And then they feel like they're falling behind because these other people present that they have everything figured out. And that's yeah. something that then puts more pressure on them, gives them more angst, right? Existential angst and causes them to spiral down and not feel good at work because all these other people must be very, you know, blissful and passionate about their work. Yeah, I think that you're absolutely right. There are a lot of people who have this ideal of, of 
this kind of super clear dominant and there are some people who have that and, and they are blessed in a way you know when you know I don't know from a young age onwards that you want to be a designer or an actor or a musician and then you actually follow that trajectory um, from an early age onwards and you have that single-minded purpose you know you just it's crystal clear that this is your passion and your passion will become your profession that's very enviable but I think only very few people have that and as you say most people have multiple passions or a mix of activities that they like and they find really actually quite threatening when they're told like follow your bliss or what's your purpose or what, what are you most passionate about what do you want to turn into your profession because a lot of people I don't don't think have that one crystal clear calling the people who have that are quite blessed I think in in some ways um uh, but but it's not the majority of people and then also you know this idea of follow your bliss if if you define bliss in a in a hedonistic way that's not very good advice right but i mean bliss is a very ambiguous concept um and um bliss could be a passion it could be a talent it could be a calling or it could just be what gives you pleasure and i think you're right it's good to have more specific guidance around that um, and I also think that when we when we talk about purpose, um, there is, you know, there, there are so many different ways of, of looking at purpose. You know, it could be quite abstract. You know, it could be like I like helping people or I like healing people or I like, um, you know, serving people that, that I think. Ideally, there has to be an altruistic element in, in purpose, right? I mean, if purpose just centers around the self and around self-realization, I think that's also where I would be quite alarmed. You know, I think in the 1980s, in the 1990s, probably early 2000s, um, self-realization was kind of broadly accepted as everybody's purpose, like just realize yourself, you know, just unfold your true potential those are very empty words ultimately and um and self-realization i think is also not a great site for meaning you know what what do you realize and to what purpose do you realize yourself right i mean it has to be more than just being your best self you know a lot of people say oh i just want to be my very best self i want to become as powerful as i can become and that's kind of their purpose but I do think what for you know what do you want to do when you are as powerful as you can be what do you want to do when you are your best self right I think that's just one step you you become efficient or effective mm -hmm. you have a degree of self-efficacy and agency but you still need a purpose that is outside of yourself I I personally really do believe that Purpose has to be something outside of ourselves. And we can we, we we might have to do a lot of work to to get to a place where we can project energy outwards, right? We have we might have to do inner work so that we even have that energy freed up. But then we still need to do something with it, right? It can't just be like being our best greatest selves. Well, it seems um, sort of where you're shaking out on that when I look at it is sort of the you know, you look, look at in terms of the psychotherapy, in terms of what changed in the last hundred years, right? There was sort of the the will around, I would say, pleasures or sex, which is more the Freudian view of the world, that everything sort of reverts back to that. 
And then there's sort of the Adlerian view, which is what you're talking about, which is if I'm going to be my best self, it's just power, right? It's my personal power. My will to power is my most important aspect of my personality. And then the the last of those, you know, I would say the three sort of uh, main psychotherapy schools of the old was then logotherapy, right? Frankl's, which is more meaning driven. And that definitely had to do more with external, right? His idea was a more, even seeing your part yourself as part of a chain of the species or a link in the human chain of progress, it still was outside yourself. Whereas the pleasure and the power were more about you. The meaning has context. And that's one of the things you were saying is it's great to have all this. What, what is, when you mean you want to be an effective person or a powerful person, it's in context with other people. So it's really, it's really about the context of where you are. And we don't, we don't really teach that, right? Because we, we sort of, con, well, we sort of confuse them all together, right? There's people in all elements of that, as opposed to, well, we do have this great, you know, moment in history. We get to define more of our meaning. That's a, there's an opportunity there, but there's more of a difficulty. It used to be a default setting, right? Whether church or family with arranged marriages and a business that was given to you by your parents, right? Or a trade more, more, there was always an element to that. Most of human history, you were part of the chain, right? By default. And now you're not necessarily part of the chain. You have to choose it. Yeah. Yeah. And that optionality, you know, that being a choice can be really oppressive, especially mm -hmm. when we idealize, you know, this kind of, hardcore vision of living on purpose you know that everything we do contributes to that one overarching aim and um yeah i love the way you 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 know you kind of separated out the pleasure power meaning um trio and i do think that frankel's theories have have recently become really popular again i mean maybe they've never really gone out of fashion you know This um, search for meaning is all about that we are, you know, meaning craving animals. We need meaning and purpose in our lives. But he is quite strict about what counts as meaning. I like that mm -hmm. about him. You know, mm -hmm. he says either you create something, you build something, you know, you 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 actually you, you are creative in the broader sense, or you dedicate your life to serving someone or serving an idea. Right. So all three are outside of the self. You know, you're you're in service of art or creativity or thought or, you know, mm -hmm. maybe the product or service or whatever. Or you you serve a person, a person you love or you um, you're dedicated to an idea and you defend that idea. And I do I do think in our very, you know, individual psychology, self-centered times, it's a good reminder to actually tell people, hey, the self is not a great site for meaning, you know, just being your best self or just self-realizing mm -hmm. or coming into your power is not the final step. It's a precondition for doing one yeah. of the three things. And I think it's really important to remember that. You know, when yeah. you have power, when you are creative, when you are able to serve, you still need to decide who or what you want to serve mm -hmm. or, or, or help and support. And that's and I and I I echo that. I think that it's not to demean pleasure or power. They're parts of a whole person. But the uh, the ultimate goal is not more power or more self-actualization, mm -hmm. right? It's 
actualization of yourself in that context of meaning with others, right? Yeah. And that's where I think, well, I, I think Frankel's having a, a little bit of a moment to a cultural moment because as he would have called the, the existential vacuum, right? He recognized this back in the thirties because of in between the wars and what was going on in the world. He would say today, if he was alive, I think the existential vacuum seems to be even worse, even though the world is more prosperous and better than it's been ever in history. It doesn't matter what you know, you and I can argue about, Oh, well, standard of livings or look at all the applications of technology. People individually may have more power over their environments now than at any other time. But if you ask young people, middle-aged people, older people, they may feel more powerless today, even though on an actual basis, they may be actually more powerful than ever. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, you know, you have the entire library of Alexandria at your fingertips and on your phone. But if you don't feel like you're part of something larger, you actually may feel totally powerless. And that's why I think that he's coming back into the fray, so to say, probably among therapists as well and coaches is because what he was talking about doesn't go away. It's a part of the human condition. The existential vacuum, the meaning crisis is always being renewed. It doesn't go away because we get more powerful in our um, technology. It doesn't go away because we get richer. Yeah, Those are just parts of you, but they're not, they don't affect the existential vacuum that is yeah. present in all humans. Yeah. And I do also think that, you know, hyper individualism has, has, has contributed to this existential vacuum. And, and therefore there's also, you know, what we talked about before, Patrick, this return of um, practical wisdom mm-hmm. of um, applied philosophy, a longing for ethical frameworks, you know, something that is shared, you know, that is not just down to, you know, individual choice and preference, but something that kind of unites us at a at a broader abstract level where we can find commonalities again. So I do think that's also maybe one of the reasons for why um logotherapy is is, is having a moment again. Um, and I guess with purpose what I find interesting about purpose, Patrick, is also that when we, you know, there are certain topics that are hard to talk about, like death, um, but also purpose and fulfillment. I think whenever people talk about it and when they talk about what what is purposeful and meaningful to them, it can sound quite cliched. And I'm including myself here, right? If mm-hmm. I were to talk about what my what my purpose is and what I see as my purpose, it would sound quite, you know, like yeah, heard that one before. You know, it's it's often, it's often you know it boils down to kind of an element of of altruistic motivations, something creative, and um, something about relationships. I mean, most people I would say have a mix of those three components in in what they see as um as their life's purpose. And um and I guess the the funny thing about purpose is also that it's um it's quite charged at the moment, right? Like we need to feel like we need to have a clearly definable purpose and we need to be able to share what that is and to put it into words and to live on purpose. And now I think what is easier to talk about and easier to to comprehend is like when we're not living on purpose, you know, how that feels like when we're off purpose. And I see that in a lot of my clients, you know, when they feel like, ah, 
you know, like I'm not on the right path. There's fulfillment is lacking. You know, this is not it. And even if it's not entirely clear what it, it is, it's clear that this is not it. So I think not living on purpose is probably something that we can all relate to, you know, when something just doesn't feel right. And when we when we notice that we have accepted sort of cultural scripts and dominant dominant narratives about purpose and then and then following that path hasn't actually felt satisfying or hasn't felt mm-hmm. meaningful that's something i i see a lot you know and that i i have also experienced you know when you just kind of follow the normal scripts trajectories career blah 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 and then you realize actually that just doesn't feel good you know it's like that's not it you know that that's not right mm-hmm. That's sort of the default setting, right? Mm-hmm. Is that what people, and maybe there's a a moment too that, you know, in traditional, um, since we're living longer in the last 80 years, right? People have now begun to have midlife crises. They never had them in the past because they died or they were getting, they were getting sick or older. <laughs> they knew their end was coming. But now that the human life expectancy is almost doubled, right? People have the ability to have midlife crises in the first and second world. And I think that probably contributes to this idea, right? So the idea of us, when, when we have enough resources to maybe not live in excess, but live comfortably to an extent, you're going to have these questions arise, which is why the existential vacuum, or Frankel, arose in Europe, in the United States, not in the rest of the world at that time, right? Because they were still, they were happily in their default settings of just advancing their families, advancing their resources, um, working within their context of the religion. And mm-hmm. now I also think it's probably harder in a sense on young people because they see people who are older, people who are middle-aged and themselves all going through these crises. So it almost causes paralysis, right? Rather than do anything, because what if I'm doing the wrong thing? I'll just do nothing. As opposed to the idea is I'll try a bunch of things and then maybe I'll find the ones that, and I, and I look at a lot of famous authors and people that I admire, they had 10 or 15 random jobs before they became an author. It also mm. might've made them a better author, right? Or a better actor. If you look at a lot of great actors, they did a bunch of side jobs and random because they really did it. It made them better in life because they did a bunch of tasks and jobs that maybe weren't right for them, but they also lived in the world. They didn't live in their head. They didn't live in the screen. They lived in the world. And by living in the world, it enabled them later to express that even better, right? And that's something, I think the ability to just wander and try a bunch of things is more of a, there's maybe a little bit forgiveness in certain European countries. In the United States, it's like, if you don't know what you're going to do by your 18, what's wrong with you? How can you not choose a college major at 18? You should know what you want to do with your life. And almost anyone who's interesting didn't know what they wanted to do in their 30s or 40s. Mm. So, so yeah. we, right. And that's, there's a few people and it's probably survivorship bias, right? The few people who said, I always do what I want to do. Yeah. But if you actually look at most of the successful people, most of them wandered, took a bunch of detours, random things, and they ended up at 45, somewhere totally different. But when they were 45, they were a more developed person. They could take more advantage. And that's something we don't give people forgiveness about, right? 
Mm. Why, we, we actually ask people, why did you change careers? Or why did you go from sales to finance to marketing? And now you're a speaker or an actor or a policeman. Why? Actually, it probably should be a good thing. Mm, yeah, That's, absolutely. If you were an actor who becomes a policeman, you're probably better at talking to people in diffusing situations. Yeah. <laughs> and a guy who, right? So, and that's something that culturally we probably need to become more comfortable with and talking to people is yeah. try more things and try it for a year. It doesn't work out. You're not going to be worse off. No, you have lots of experiences <laughs> under your belt. You have, you know, interesting perspectives. You you have tried different things, have different skill sets. I fully agree. You know, the kind of multi-hyphen portfolio mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. career person. This is becoming more of a norm and also is an interesting new development, you know, usually very, very positive. And, you know, this move from kind of narrow-minded, lifelong expertise towards having a big conglomeration of, of different experiences that all in some weird ways feed into one another, even if you think they might not. Um, and you also mentioned the midlife crisis, Patrick. And I do think, um, you know, the question of purpose and fulfillment really does become even more acute around, you know, in, in, in our 40s, because we have often reached a certain material level of comfort, you know, ticked certain boxes um made certain milestones and and when that is all in place it's then that you feel the spiritual and existential vacuum you know then you realize Mm -hmm. like oh actually although i'm i'm doing really well in my career it doesn't give me anything you know like i don't even like it i get a salary but i don't do get no um meaning from it or you have you know accumulated material possessions that can also feel very empty so i think in midlife and and um carl jung talks about it a lot you know it's in midlife when many of the kind of resource questions that you mentioned have have in in many cases but not in all of course and been dealt with it's then that you kind of turn inwards again you know it's like oh you've had the family you've had the career you've reached a comfortable level and now you have time to to look inwards again and 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 then often people see oh yeah actually that doesn't doesn't feel enough or that doesn't feel good or that doesn't feel right anymore and it can be that it never was right or it can be that mm-hmm. it was right for a while and that your desires have changed and um, but that's why we are seeing lots of career changes in in the you know in in midlife this pivoting this kind of starting again um, but for that, you do need to know what you want to do instead, right? A lot of people uh, come to me and they say, like, I don't want to do this anymore, but they don't really know what they want to do instead. And that is, you know, when when it gets interesting, then you have to really explore what is meaningful and what, what matters and why and how you can translate that into, into something you might want to do instead. Mm-hmm. And I think... That's one of the things is we could give, you know, people guidance that they can try more things, mm. right? That they, it's not, it's not as if you have to make one or two career pivots in your life. You can make as many as you can, mm. right? So it's, it's, that's something too that, you know, the, the, the script is changing, but it's still, um, you know, we still have something in our minds that we should be committed longer term to our employers or as a, a business owner, right? Or whatever it is. Whereas if you look at many people make lots of fits and starts throughout their life and 
Some people need to have more A-B testing and more trials and errors to get where they want. Some people get lucky on the first try, right? Mm. And that's sort of luck. It's not always inherent personal knowledge. There's an element of luck to all of it. And, or they got exposed maybe to the right teacher or the right person at a young age, which helped them craft their, their passion or their inherent ability into something. If you look at also the stories of most of the people that, whether it's actors or painters or writers or, um, you know, teachers, they usually had someone who was very formative at the right age in their life, which gave them that little push in that direction. And that's, I mean, that's a blessing, but it's luck because most people in the world don't have that luck. And that's a, a meeting, right? And it's something we should greatly admire. We should say, oh, that's amazing. But most people are going to have to grind through multiple sort of pivots and testings to get there. They can still get there. We should tell them you, if you can become a writer when you're 60. There's mm. nothing that's going to stop you if it's if you've lived your whole life and that's something you've always wanted to do. And nowadays you're going to live longer and you have more access to teaching and learning. So you could probably can learn it just as good as someone. It'll take you longer than in your 20s, but it doesn't mean you can't do it. And I think yep. that's a message that's great for people to hear because there's many people that feel lost, but the good thing is, is you can keep trying multiple things until you're found. It doesn't have to be one shot, two shot, three shots. We don't know what it will necessarily be. Yeah. And also, absolutely, I fully agree with that. And also, I think certain things might feel meaningful and purposeful at certain points in our lives, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there's also no need to look at like, oh, this was a mistake or that was bad or this didn't, you know, that's not what I want to do. I mean, sometimes it can also be like, it feels really meaningful in the moment and then you do it for a while and then it, and then it stops. Yeah. And then you find something else and that's also okay. You know, when you, when your desires change and when what, what feels purposeful and meaningful it's just in flux. It's also not static, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like we can have very different desires in, in our early stages and then in our later stages. And, and that's that's also important to kind of react to that yep. and adapt. And, to that. and I, I like, and that's a case in point is a lot of people in around our ages feel that they're living and working sort of to provide for their children. Yeah. And that's that's a wonderful thing. And they're, they may be in a suboptimal purpose job, but it's highly paid or it's safe and stable and they have good benefits. That's okay to do for 20 years hmm. because your, your career is not 20 years. And then when the, your kid goes away and goes on their life, you're able to take more risk or more volatility and do something else. And that's something I think that, like you said, it's okay. You can have, you cannot be completely fulfilled in your job because you're serving your family. And, exactly. and creating resources That's for them. But then, really mean, right? but it doesn't mean you need to stay there forever. And it doesn't mean that when they leave, you can't go do something totally entrepreneurial or move to another country. Or, and that's something I see that we should be encouraging people to do. Because again, you can go live in another country for six months to a year. And if it's not great, move back. Mm -hmm. Now, and, it, and, and, it, and you don't have to live beyond your means. I mean, that's one of the, the hacks to life, if you look at it's as long as you don't live in excess of your means, you have more optionality. And some people have great means, so it's very hard to live in excess. Some people have much less means, but if they share resources, right, and they maybe do things that are non-traditional, there's probably more optionality for everybody in that sense. And encouraging that type of thinking, rather than you only have one purpose, 
you better find it. And if you don't find it, you're sort of a loser, which is sort of what I think a lot of the popular self-development says. Oh, you don't, you, you don't, if you don't have your passion at work, you're working as a marketing manager at a big tech company. No, that, that that's not necessarily true. You may just be developing skills and knowledge that you can use later in life for a more personal career. You may be developing, you know, personal capital in the form of financial capital, intelligence that you're going to use later. Every moment doesn't have to be a hundred percent purpose driven. Absolutely. Or your or your purpose might be, as you say, to serve your family mm-hmm. until a certain point in time, and then and then you pivot when when that's no longer the key priority. But I I think what what we can probably agree on is that what matters is to be deliberate and to be conscious of what what you're doing, right? And even if you have you know say a job that you don't love but you know why you're doing it, you know, because what you're getting out of it is what is meaningful to you, you know, like to, to support someone, um, then there's still purpose in that. It might not be located in your job. It might be located in your private life somewhere. So I think that's, that's also really important. And I actually have a, a question for you, Patrick, because I know that you, you served and I just wanted to ask about, you know, serving and what that felt like. And, um, you know, the relationship between serving in the military and, and purpose. Well, I think it's, um, it's definitely the, you know, it's in the military too, is he, he who has a, why well, can bear anyhow. Right. And that's been quoted by many people throughout history, Nietzsche, George Bernard Shaw, but it's something that people have probably said for thousands of years that if you have, a goal in mind, you can suffer for it. And it doesn't, if you bear the suffering much easier, right? And this is a Stoic notion, a Christian notion, an ancient Greek notion. It's been throughout history. And I think that um, people who, you know, go into military um, service with that intention, and it can be, some of it can be, you know, younger people looking for meaning or needing external discipline and training, right? And, and sort of, you know, mentor slash familial fit figures they can find in the military, as well as if you're more of a idealist or a hyper-rational person that may be, you know, serving the ideals of the nation, right, that, that you're serving. Um, I think it puts your thoughts at least in action, right? If you have this idea of service and you do it, um, you actually got to live it, right? And there is an element to that that can probably carry over into the rest of your life. That if looked at positively, military people, I have, you know, friends who served four years in the 1980s, and they still feel incredibly proud of their service and incredibly tied to sort of the fate of the country because of that. And it's a, it's a smart thing for a society to have people with that love and that buy-in. And it's not, you know, blind patriotism or jingoism in any way, but it's still a deep attachment to that. And I think anyone who's served an organization, right, where it had an element of that altruism, you feel attached to the outcome of the organization. You want, even if you're critical of the organization, you want it to survive. You want it to thrive because it's part of you in your life journey. And that's something that I think carries over not only to that, but into life as well, right? And when parents are serving their children, which they are for most of their life, They want to see their children survive and thrive. And of course, they all say 
the platitude of I want them to find meaning or purpose in their life, right? And that is a great notion, but how do you actually pass that on and um, teach them? And that's one of the things. There's yeah. if you look in our, in our in our curriculum, we don't do a good job of having anything that teaches this. So the people who found the teacher who gave them some one-on-one mentorship or the business owner who did, or the older, uh, you know, the adult figure, they got very lucky. Most people don't have that. So they're trying to find it from a conglomeration of books or um, online resources. And it's very difficult to do it without someone who maybe models it for you. And it's like, you use that word. It's, it's, it's a popular word in the self-development, but it's intentional, right? It's the same as deliberate. If you do things with intention and not everything actually has to be done with intention, right? You can choose, I'm going to be very intentional with work this year, or I'm going to be very intentional with my travel this year, or I'm just not going to be intentional, right? And, but that's also an intention. You're saying, I'm going to read fiction just because I like to read. It doesn't have a purpose. I'm not trying to get smarter. Now, it does make you smarter, just as walking makes you healthier. You don't have to walk with intention to make yourself healthier. It's a byproduct. And I think we can sort of use those words to tell people not everything in the world has to be intentional, but knowing why you're doing things and knowing maybe the overall arc of the story you want, whether, like you said, it's usually something to do with altruism or outside you, that can be um, a great boon for anyone. And part of the military service thing is it gives you an arc. You can continue to serve when you leave the military. It just may be serving your family, your community, your business, your company, your, your employees or employer. You can have that mindset that then carries over to the rest of your life and mm. enables you to have, do things with intention. Yeah, yeah. And it's all about, you know, there's kind of something bigger than yourself, something outside of yourself, something that, you know, brings people together and, you, um, and you're just kind of taken outside of your own little, you know, ego domain when, when you serve a bigger purpose or project organization or cause um and i think that's probably a feeling that many many of us don't don't have in daily life and um i think you know purpose is also a feeling isn't it you know not just a kind of cognitive clearly formulated intention but it's also something you feel it's like when when something feels meaningful i think that's also some it's at some level it's a it's a somatic experience as well you know and it doesn't always have to be pleasurable because i think living on purpose can also be hard you know because it's not always easy to to do um what is really meaningful to you and it, it, it doesn't always just give pleasure you know it's not just a hedonistic thing but I think you, you will sort of at some level we feel it when we do something that is meaningful and that is is important. You know, it's like when when we kind of when we're focused, when we're intensely in the moment, and when I don't know, every all of us is somehow engaged and we're not, you know, we're not indifferent, but we, we care deeply at some level. So I, mm-hmm. I you know, because because I, I agree with you that being on purpose or how to find your purpose or how to live a purposeful life is not something that we can teach well it's really something that people need to like be attuned to learn to be attuned to how that feels as well you know because mm-hmm. it's not just a rational thing i mean what what is purposeful to one person is yep. just totally not purposeful to another 
and there's no no way in which it can be prescribed or shared or passed on it's like you have to sort of it's it's a kind of attunement you have to find what what chimes with you and i don't mean to sound too esoteric here but i think there is a a dimension of um this has to has to be a feeling state as well right when you feel dissonance when you feel like I'm out of tune, like this doesn't engage me or this doesn't satisfy me or it feels wrong, then you're like not on purpose. And and I think living a life on purpose is, is also a feeling state. And I think that goes into some of the, you know, um, research Chick Mahai did and other people around flow states, mm. right? That you have these, you find you could, and it's not, none of us will live in constant flow states. That's not the way that they were describing it, but it's, doing the supporting activities and having flow states in your life was the important part. Not always trying to live in a flow state, not just maximizing for the, you know, the um, length and the intensity of flow states, but having different activities in your life that you may find that in. And as long as I think you have glimpses of that throughout your life, you can test and continue to optimize and you can sort of look over time and that's the learning and growth process. When people say they're into um, personal development or growth, like a lot of people popular say today, there isn't an endpoint, right? It's <laughs> you 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 continue to learn. And what gives you flow states in your forties might not give you slow states in your twenties, and it may not be in your sixties. So, growth and learning are continuous, right? And yeah. being uh, when people talk about growth mindsets or lifelong learners. But that by definition means you're continuing to do it, right? It's an element of you in your being of you may not be growing each month or each year, but over 10 years you are, right? And over 10 years, you you feel like you're improving your skills or getting better, what you learning more about yourself, what you um, what you find purpose in that decade or not. And that's something that I think we could at least, like you said, teach people to identify the feeling, see other people in flow states maybe talk more about what gets you what doesn't get you there it's probably easier to take away the bad things the things which are are not going to put you in flow states cheap dopamine right like we've talked about whether it's you know um social media um pornography things that are that are sort of hacks to dopamine given by modern business those are not going to be good for anyone right and it's sort of the, it's, you could say all drugs are bad, but then people would say, well, there are some drugs that seem to have effects on depression or anxiety. The psychedelics done with intention can have good outcomes, but dopamine drugs with no intention seem to have terrible outcomes, We right? Alcohol, cocaine, things like this. So it seems like we, we can see that just in, in that one world is you, it's not all drugs are bad. It's that drugs done for certain reasons or drugs done for other reasons, you can find um, positives and negatives. And teaching people about that maybe would, and, it, and there's obviously an element of life design as well as neuroscience and psychology that's all being tied together. There isn't just a good lexicon in our culture because it seems like people are siloing themselves off about it still. Mm. Yeah. And I guess, I guess this whole idea of living on purpose, it, it can be quite subtle as well, right? I mean, it might not be a, a dramatic flow state experience. You know, it could be more of a contentedness or a feeling of rightness. Um, it could be it could be the absence of feeling 
dissonance, right? Mm -hmm. I think we often imagine that living on purpose is going to be, you know, revelatory and all your problems go away once you've identified your purpose and you're on on your path. Um, But I I also think it can be calmer than that and less spectacular, Mm -hmm. (laughs) less less dramatic also in its felt effects. it depends on you know what it is of course you know if if you because purpose can be can be quiet and and calm as well i suppose mm-hmm. it doesn't be um you know clearly visible or extreme or chasing extreme states and so on yeah and i think that's part of you know when you people define peak or flow states they think peak as in a some sort of extreme mm-hmm. but flow states have maybe different peaks and valleys and Walking in nature can be a flow state for mm. someone. Playing with their child can be a flow state. Yeah. Going to a music festival and partaking in or playing music are flow states. Playing sports, not playing sports. Like it's people watching sports get into a flow state. These are all things that I, I think we, we just, have, like you said, they don't have to be extreme at all. They can be very yeah. mundane. They can be cooking for some people, for many people, creating a meal for other people to eat is a flow state. So it doesn't have to, it can be most, what you want to find are a balance of um, flow states and mundane activities yeah. as well as other. And that's just something that I think is part of being a learner and learning about this. And it's great that there is at least attention and resources out there that people are doing research into all of this more so today than at probably any time in human history. And I think in the next 10 years, we're going to get even more information on it. Because look at positive psychology's very recent development in the history of, you know, psychology has been talked about for thousands of years. This is the first time we're actually looking at maybe how to make things better, not just how to repair things that are deficient. But we're early on in that. We're probably in the first or second inning. And the amount, the research going into psychedelics, the research, this is all, that's like before the first inning. They haven't even had the lineup yet, right? People have been experimenting for years. But, and they've been doing it for thousands of years. But in terms of actually saying, is there a way we can improve people's well-being using these psychoactive compounds? This is all new. So that should get people hope and excitement, right? So stay alive and stay healthy. And there's going to be more to come, I think. And that's a positive thing. And it may, it may so, you know, maybe so that in the future, there's ways that we can help people find and test this in their life earlier on, right? And it may be through, you know, medicine journeys. It may be through um, designing sort of your life type classes, which they have at some schools, right? More famously. And, but it may become more widespread. It may become part of a core curriculum, right? And it may just, it may not be, we're going to get you there. Let's just create a common language. It's like personal finance doesn't teach you how to get rich. It just teaches you the language so that you know how to effectuate it in your life. You don't need to know everything about it. What you need to know is where to avoid the pitfalls. And I think it's similar of a, a personal finance class, which I think most people who go to school would like to have one, even though they don't teach it anywhere. It'd be the same with sort of a life design class. It's not going to teach you, really. It's going to give you a framework and a lexicon to discuss with other people. And it might take you 30 years past that point, 40 years. But you'll at least be able to communicate with the people around you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like I like that idea. I like that idea. And it brings us full circle to the beginning of our discussion because I also do think we need 
to be less perfectionist about purpose, right? So that the purpose pressure that we talked about, that can be a real issue. You know, if you feel you don't have it and you should have it and you must have it now, <laughs> what's my purpose? Um, that can be can be oppressive. So I think, you know, looking at purpose as something that can change, you know, that can metamorphose from one thing into another over the different stages of your life that can take a long time to discover right and that's okay too it, you might have to search for it for for quite a while you might have to try lots of different jobs as we've discussed um you might have to be you know more modest about what it might feel like to have it right i mean because i think we all expect it to be like you know this kind of panacea this bombastic problem solver <laughs> and i do think it's it's probably calmer than that living a, yeah. a life that is on purpose it's probably not as you know kind of it it, it, it probably doesn't feel as spectacular all the time as we might think it does it can be really hard it can mm -hmm. kind of periods in which it is um uh, you know, a quiet or barely perceptible feeling as well. So I, I do think, you know, when we think about purpose and when we talk about purpose, we, we have to be a bit more realistic and a little bit more, yeah, flexible about what that term might mean, how it might manifest. And also, I don't think we should have too high ideals around that word. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, similar to what, you know, I think being gentle with other people and with yourself and at every moment in your life, you're not going to feel that undying, unending purpose. But as long as you're continuing to learn and grow towards things, yeah. that's what you want, right? And that's what you want for everybody. You're, you're, you, you're, you can compound your purpose just like you can compound your money and you can compound your intelligence. And it doesn't, some people start out with more of it, like we said, and they're lucky. Some people have a lot less. But as long as by the time you, you get older and older, you're continuing to get a little better at it. It may be very incremental, like you said. Yeah, Maybe very, very subtle. But you can watch old people that their purpose is walking with their dog and tending their garden, and they seem to be just as happy as somebody who's flying on a private jet. Does sure. that really and they just they've compounded their purpose in a different way? Yeah. And I think that's an ideal that we people can all reach for. And it, it, there's nothing, there's no demonizing of the word. And there's no, like you, it doesn't have to be extravagant or super volatile. And it's not going to be super, you're not going to have just as many great days, right? You're only going to have a handful of great days, period. So it's more about that, that everyday mundane. That's what I think people will end up solving for in the next 10 years and away yeah. from somebody else. Yeah. So we, we need to be a bit more humble <laughs> about purpose, I guess. But at the same time, I think as long as we reflect on it, I think the reflection, the process, you know, the questioning of what it might be and how it might show up and how we can um, get closer to it and, and experimenting and searching. I mean, the, the quest for purpose, I think, is really essential that we don't give up on that, you know, that we actually make deliberate choices, that we we try and um live intentional lives and 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 find out what is meaningful to us and don't just accept other people's narratives about it. I think that that is also essential. And we'll end on, you know, Frankel's book, The, the Will to Meaning. Yes, exactly. It's the will and it's going to change yeah. and it's not an ending point. 
Mm-hmm. It's not a point. It's a it's your trajectory to place you're going towards, not a place you arrive at. Yeah. Lovely yeah, final it. 